Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 21, Elementary, Empedocles and the Secret History of the Elements. Empedocles of Akragas, a very fascinating philosopher. We could also say a fascinating magical thinker, a fascinating exponent of cyclical cosmic transformation, a fascinating sacred healer, and any number of other interesting descriptors. He was, by his own account, a physician, a politician, a diviner, and an exiled god. And most importantly for the history of Western esotericism, Empedocles is the first author who writes about the fascinating theory of what would become the traditional four elements, fire, water, earth, and air. But okay, the elements are fine, but how do magic, catastrophism, religious healing practices, and all the other weirdness we find in Empedocles' work get to be considered philosophy? Once again, we're faced with the reality of ancient philosophy, a reality very different from the post-Kantian philosophers whose job is to sit around and think really hard. Some ancient philosophy really was a way of life, and a way of life which might involve many elements outside of what is considered philosophy nowadays. We can quote Brad Inwood here, whose translations of the Empedoclean fragments we'll be using in this episode. In a well-taken point, Inwood notes, It is impossible to divide the study of Empedocles, reconstructing his scientific thought and his religious thought separately. As with Heraclitus, with Parmenides, and, as far as we can tell, with Pythagoras, Empedocles' thought is a baffling unity. It brings together concerns which we would want to distinguish as philosophical and religious. It has become uncontroversial to accept that natural science and philosophy should not be distinguished in the early period of Greek thought, at least down to Aristotle. But it is equally important to accept that religious ideas are integral to the philosophical enterprises understood by at least some of the pre-Socratics. End of quote. So who was this multifaceted philosopher? Empedocles was from the Sicilian Greek city of Akragas, so once again we find ourselves in southern Italy. He lived sometime in the 5th century BCE, a bit later than Parmenides, and as we shall see, he seems to be responding to Parmenides in certain aspects of his thought. And it's probably safe to say that Empedocles grew up in a milieu suffused with Pythagoreanism. At any rate, it's certain that there were Pythagoreans about in his time, and as we shall see, elements of his thought fit very well within the varied confederacy of intellectual currents which flourished among the groups collectively known to later traditions as Pythagoreans. Empedocles is often considered a Pythagorean in the later tradition, the doxographic tradition of antiquity. We didn't take this to mean that he called himself a Pythagorean, but it seems pretty certain on balance that he was working with materials that he received directly from Pythagorean thought in his time. He's also doing some strikingly original things with these ideas, But that is actually what we expect from Pythagoreans. Despite the lack of primary evidence for these thinkers aside from Philolaus of Croton, whom we discussed in an earlier episode, we have plenty of circumstantial evidence which paints a picture of early Pythagoreanism as a very diverse and speculative, inventive tradition. Now, as for Empedocles' biography, we have an embarrassment of riches. Later doxographic writers like Diogenes Laertius give us a wonderful amount of colorful detail about Empedocles' life, and especially his death. 
Diogenes relates many tales, not all of which he necessarily believes. Empedocles controlled the winds using the flayed skins of asses, unlikely because, as we shall see, Empedocles was staunchly against killing animals. He put a woman into a trance indistinguishable from death for 30 days. Or alternately, he revived such a woman after she was presumed dead. Perhaps echoes of soul manipulation tales associated with the Pythagorean tradition. He was offered rulership of his home city, but refused through philosophic humbleness and love for the democratic system of government. He plunged into the heart of the fiery volcano Etna, only to return later, alive and well. Again, descent into the earth and later reappearance is a recognizable trope of the Pythagorean soul manipulators. So lots of great stories, but we don't have very much that historians would rate as sound evidence. What we do have is his work, which is the last great philosophic poem or poems in the ancient Greek tradition. After Empedocles' time, poetry had had its day, and it was the turn of philosophic prose to have a go. Now, scholars usually attribute two main poetic works to Empedocles, the katharmoi, or purifications, and an on nature, a physica or periphiseos. Neither of these need represent an actual title given by the poet himself. Titles weren't really a thing in pre-Socratic times, and anyway, the title on nature is a generic description as much as a title, and can be applied to pretty much every pre-Socratic work. Diogenes Laertius, for example, calls Parmenides' poem on nature. But things get a bit dicey here, because a number of other works are attributed to Empedocles in the doxographic tradition, including some other poems, some dramatic tragedies, a medical work, and even a poem known as the Expedition of Xerxes, which might have been a history of the Persian Wars. Now, none of these works survives, and what I wouldn't give to read the tragedies of Empedocles. But what does survive might, in fact, be not the remains of two poems, but of a single poem. The two-poem theory is based partly on the different titles given in the later tradition, the purifications and the on nature, but also on the kind of religion versus science divide we've been warned about earlier. Interpreters have tended to take the religious fragments, texts dealing, for example, with Empedocles' theories about metempsychosis and daimones and ethics, and lump it under the title purifications, Empedocles' supposed religious work, while the scientific stuff, stuff about the elements, the cosmos, how the physical world works, how biological organisms evolved, goes in the supposed on nature. We don't really know, but my money is on the one poem hypothesis for what it's worth. But that being said, it does seem likely that the poem had two main parts, one cosmological and physical, and one more ethical, and perhaps dealing with things like metempsychosis and other religious topics. For the purposes of this episode, anyway, we're just going to refer to Empedocles' poem. What we'll mean by this is just the surviving fragments of Empedocles, to keep things simple. These are epic hexameter stanzas, just as we saw with Parmenides. So like Parmenides, Empedocles is adopting the traditional old-school mode of wisdom discourse among the Greeks. So to finish with our rather sketchy and diffuse biographical treatment, does Empedocles' poem tell us anything about the man's life? Well, yes, it tells us some rather intriguing things. Firstly, Empedocles is no longer a mortal man, he is a god. In Deal's Fragment 112, Empedocles greets the citizens of his hometown and introduces himself. O friends who dwell in the great city of the yellow Akragas, hail. 
And by the way, I'm quoting from Inwood's translations, as I mentioned earlier. I'm occasionally leaving a line or two out in these quotations just because the poetic ornamentation is not as interesting to us as statements of doctrine. I, in your eyes, a deathless god, no longer mortal, go among all, honored just as I seem, wreathed with ribbons and festive garlands. As soon as I arrive in flourishing cities, I am revered by all, men and women, and they follow at once, in their ten thousands, asking, where is the path to gain? Some in need of divinations, others in all sorts of diseases, sought to hear a healing oracle. End of quote. So Empedocles is depicting himself as a wandering teacher of wisdom here, who delivers healing oracles and other divinatory counsel. He's apparently greeted as a living, breathing divinity, or at least as some kind of holy man, wherever he goes. Now, this is a theme which we've seen already in Greek culture. There were various types of wandering religious specialists about from at least the 6th century onwards, and they persist in various forms right up to the Christian era, where their role is increasingly taken over by the Christian holy men, the saints, some of whom also wander about and visit different cities and so on. We'll be talking about one such pagan figure, which hasn't featured in the podcast yet very dramatically, the Bacchic Initiator, in an upcoming episode. We've also seen the latter-day Pythagorean philosopher Apollonius of Tiana, wandering the cities of the world and sorting out everyone's problems for them. So Empedocles, as he tells us, at least appears as a living, breathing god, and is held to be such by tens of thousands of people wherever he goes. He may be exaggerating a bit here. In fact, let's face it, he's full of it. And this over-the-top style of self-presentation probably accounts for the many wonderful and colorful stories told about him in the later sources. Go Empedocles. Empedocles can also teach more traditional magic arts. With him, we have our first glimpse of what must be called proper magical practice in the context of philosophy. We've seen that Pythagoreans were associated with some practices of soul manipulation in various contexts. But Empedocles gives us a proper magical program. In fragment 111, he addresses someone. We know from other fragments that this is Pausanias, his boy lover, saying, quote, All the potions which there are as a defense against evils and old age, you shall learn, since for you alone will I accomplish all these things. You shall put a stop to the strength of the tireless winds, and again, if you wish, you shall bring the winds back again, and you shall make, after rain, a drought timely for men, and after summer drought you shall make tree-nourishing streams which dwell in the air, and you shall bring from Hades the strength of a man who has died. Note that pharmaca in the first line of this fragment, translated as potions, can actually refer to a very broad range of practices and objects, including magical actions generally, so powerful ritual actions and spells, as well as potions, poisons, and cosmetics, can all be pharmaca. So Empedocles doesn't just heal folk, he knows how to control the weather for men's benefit, and he can also teach you how to bring back from Hades the strength of a man who has died. The strength in question is menos, which can also mean life or lifeblood in a Homeric context. So that's some weird stuff. And while we can't say exactly what is meant here, it certainly has something to do with necromancy, summoning up the dead. So what we're looking at here, as far as we can trust Empedocles' self-presentation, is a wandering healer with access to powerful magic. Good. But where, I hear you ask, is the philosophy? Well, gentle listener, this is the philosophy, 
or part of it. But actually, most of the surviving fragments, and there are a record number of these, more than for any other pre-Socratic, in fact, most of them deal with Empedocles' philosophy proper, as you might say, and we can develop a relatively clear picture of how his theory of the universe must have worked from these. We also have some important points where no one can quite agree, but we'll try to point these out as we go along. In fragment 6, Empedocles tells us, quote, first hear of the four roots of all things, gleaming Zeus and life-bringing Hera and Idoneus, and Nestus, who moistens with tears the springs of mortals. These roots, as his poem elsewhere makes clear, are the four traditional elements. Zeus standing for fire, Nestus the sea goddess for water, Idoneus, which is an epic name of the god Hades, for the ether, or air, and Hera for the earth. There's been a lot of confusion about these later two, with everyone wanting to put Hades with earth, for fairly obvious reasons, as Hades lives down there in the earth, and because of later Greek confusions about the etymology of the Greek word air. But as attentive listeners to last week's episode will be aware, the underworld in Greek thought is paradoxically a place with a heavenly ethereal splendor all its own. For those interested in this debate about ether and earth and air, see the works of Peter Kingsley in the recommended reading to this episode. As Kingsley shows, Empedocles associates Hera with earth and Idoneus with ether, or the shining upper air of the atmosphere, clearer and more pure than the gunk we breathe down here on the earth's surface. These four roots are imperishable eternal realities. Everything that exists is formed from combinations of these four, but the roots themselves are never fundamentally transformed by the many mixtures they undergo. Empedocles also propounds two other eternal principles, the active organizing cosmic forces of love, philotes, and strife, nekos. These are eternal forces of attraction and repulsion, respectively. Love wants to bring the roots into mixture with one another, and strife wants to separate them out into their pure forms. Empedocles insists on a kind of law of the conservation of matter and energy, to put it in modern terms. If matter is the four roots and energy is love and strife, um, Empedocles makes it clear that for all the mixing and remixing that can occur with these principles, it's totally impossible that they should ever be destroyed or fundamentally changed, nor can anything new ever truly come to be. Here he may well be answering the challenge posed by Parmenides. Like Parmenides, he bigs up being, but denies coming to be, or genesis. And there seems to be a cosmic cycle on a vast scale, whereby an incalculably long age of predominating love, where love gradually draws the roots into greater and greater harmony and mixture until they are utterly combined, resulting in a kind of perfectly homogeneous sphere, described in fragments 27 to 29 and 36, which may also owe a debt to the description of being in Parmenides. But unlike Parmenidean being, this sphere of the perfectly mixed elements is surrounded by strife, which attacks it, setting in motion another eon, this one of increasing separation, as the roots are brought out into purer and purer forms until they exist in complete separation with no mixture at all. Then love gets involved again, and the process repeats in the opposite direction. And interestingly, Empedocles tells us that the men of his day, and so presumably we as well, are in the age of increasing strife. The pure harmonious mixture of all with all is slowly breaking up under the influence of raving strife, as he calls it. 
Empedocles believes in a theory of reincarnation into many forms, which is of course a belief which was taught by Pythagoras himself, as we've seen. He also seems to advocate vegetarianism and to critique the traditional blood sacrifices which were the primary expression of Greek religion. We have no early evidence that Pythagoras attacked the institution of sacrifice, although Xenophanes' anecdote about the puppy, see episode 16, might follow such a logic. But a lot of later tradition does impute this critique to Pythagoras, although it must be said that some later traditions also say that Pythagoras was all about animal sacrifices. But let's check out a fragment of Empedocles here, fragment 115, quoting, There is an oracle of necessity, an ancient decree of the gods, eternal, sealed with broad oaths. Whenever one, in his sins, stains his dear limbs with blood, he wanders for thrice ten thousand seasons away from the blessed ones, growing to be all sorts of forms of mortal things through time, interchanging the hard paths of life. I too am now one of these, an exile from the gods and a wanderer, trusting in mad strife. We can see here a theory of reincarnation of a familiar Pythagorean stamp. Incarnations are determined by one's deeds in a given life, crimes are punished by long exiles in the world of mortal life, and Empedocles himself is such an exile, which is interesting. In other fragments we get a critique of blood sacrifice in no uncertain terms, and also he seems to condemn the eating of meat. In fragment 136, will you not desist from harsh-sounding bloodshed? Do you not see that you are devouring each other in the heedlessness of your understanding? Or fragment 137, a father lifts up his dear son who has changed his form and prays and slaughters him in great folly. And they are at a loss as they sacrifice the suppliant. But he, on the other hand, deaf to the rebukes, sacrificed him in his halls and prepared himself an evil meal. In the same way, a son seizes his father and the children their mother, and tearing out their life breath, devour their own dear flesh. There are other examples of this theme in the fragments. Empedocles really wants us to stop eating meat and performing blood sacrifices. And the logic seems to be very simple. When you eat a living animal, you are in fact committing cannibalism, because every living animal is the reincarnated form of someone like you. And if this wasn't Pythagorean enough, we have the wonderful one-line fragment 141. Wretches, utter wretches, keep your hands off beans. So don't eat beans either. Now, attentive listeners to this podcast are now asking the question, since, as we saw in episode four, the Greeks at this time were only beginning to develop the idea of a unified locus of consciousness, a soul in the classic sense, what does Empedocles think it is that reincarnates? Is it a soul? Well, Empedocles discusses humans in terms of many of the traditional Homeric aspects of consciousness, or even organs of consciousness. So prapides, thumos, menos, phrenes, and so on. So no, we have not arrived at a soul here. The human being is a multiple creature with different faculties residing in different organs of the body. And Empedocles makes it clear that only the four roots and the two principles are truly imperishable. Even the gods, it seems, will wear out eventually. This is a somewhat difficult point because Empedocles does refer to the gods by their traditional epithet of immortal, although he also sometimes describes the gods, and daimones, as merely long-lived. But it seems to be the only way to make sense of his philosophy. When the entirety of what exists is reduced to an utter homogeneity without a single feature of any kind under the influence of love, 
there's no room for gods or anything else. Just as when under the influence of strife, the elements are separated out to their most pure and simple forms, there can be nothing complex like gods, since the gods too are made up of the four roots. So the gods must a priori be dissolved into the ground of being of the four roots when the cosmos undergoes its cyclical oscillations, either as a union of total mixture or as the total separation of the four roots. So the human doesn't have anything like an eternal platonic soul. But here's the fascinating thing. The human being, insofar as it reincarnates, is a daimon. Not immortal in the truest sense, but at any rate outlasting mortal form after mortal form, and perhaps existing through one entire cosmic alternation between love and strife. So existing on a truly cosmic timescale. So what is a daimon? Well, Empedocles is repurposing traditional religious ideas here. A daimon, in its traditional sense, from what we can tell, is basically a god. It's another name for a god. It's a powerful thinking being of some kind. But the term tends to be used for the kinds of gods closer to human concerns than the higher Olympians who are actually given names. In later Platonist thought, and I emphasize that this is a later idea coming after Empedocles, the daimones will be given a definite sort of location in the universe. They swarm in the atmosphere and in the stars, and are so literally between human beings and the gods, both in position and in nature, being sort of a halfway between the material gross body of mortals and the pure immaterial reality of the gods. Maybe we can think of something like uh, jinns in Islamic thought or Christian angels. They're mediators between the highest gods and the humans. But in our earlier period, the period of Empedocles, the gods on the one hand are closer to humans, and the humans are sometimes closer to gods, and it's more difficult to place the daimones exactly. However, either everyone is a daimon for Empedocles, or perhaps, according to some other interpretations, only some elect few of humans are daimones. But either way, Empedocles, when he calls himself a god, seems to mean it quite literally. And perhaps he means that everyone is a god, an exiled god traversing body after body on a journey through the elements in the Age of Strife. Empedocles gives us some hints as to how the course of reincarnations might go for someone, presumably someone like himself, who has acted well, abstained from bloodshed, and done whatever else one needs to do to obtain an ascending quality of incarnations, to obtain better and better incarnations. Fragment 127. Among beasts, they become mountain-dwelling lions, and laurels among fair-tressed trees. So, Empedocles seems to have a thing about the laurel tree. In other fragments, he talks about it as well. It seems to have a, a very powerful daimon within it. Fragment 146. And finally, they become prophets, that's mantes, and singers and doctors and leaders among men who dwell on earth. Thence, they sprout up as gods first in their prerogatives. So you can become a very special type of person and go from there to being a fully-fledged god. And fragment 147, sharing hearth and table with other immortals, being free of manly woes, untiring. So there is a way out of the cyclical incarnations, at least for a while. But in the end, the daimones themselves will dissolve into the four roots under the influence of the implacable forces of love and raving strife. Now, the more I read Empedocles, the more fascinating I find him. And I hope this episode has whetted your appetite a little bit to go and check out the man's work. But we need to talk a little bit more about the elements, which is, after all, the chief legacy of Empedocles to 
Western thought and Western esotericism particularly. First of all, we have it on Aristotle's authority that Empedocles is the first to posit what we now think of as the four traditional elements of earth, air, fire, and water as the primary building blocks of the universe. Of course, Aristotle, as is his wont, puts the whole thing into his own terms, speaking of matter or material, where Empedocles speaks of roots and things. Aristotle calls the roots stoichea, a later term for element, which Empedocles doesn't use. And he also changes Empedocles' term aether for air, aer in Greek, which, as Peter Kingsley has shown, actually confuses things in terms of what Empedocles was saying, and generally puts him alongside other thinkers in a kind of debate which Aristotle himself kind of invented about what the matter of the universe is. So Aristotle lists all the kind of pre-Socratic theories out there about what the universe is made of, and he conceives the whole thing in terms of hule, matter. Now this may be counterintuitive to modern thinkers, but the idea that things are made of matter is not necessarily self-evident. As Bishop Barclay powerfully argued in the late 17th century, things are real, but why posit this extra thing called matter of which they're made? Isn't a table just made of table? Anyway, while this is a discussion for a much later episode, it's an interesting question to consider. Nevertheless, Empedocles' presence in Aristotle's account of the pre-Socratic what is the universe made of debate is significant because later traditions will, for whatever reason, find this division of reality into four principles very compelling, and it becomes a leitmotif of Western thought down to the modern era. Hopefully, in the course of future episodes, we'll be able to trace more of the secret history of this idea and its transmission, not ignoring Aristotle's own contribution of taking on board Empedocles' theory and adding to it a fifth element, the so-called quintessence. It's problematic to talk about Empedocles' theory of the elements because our modern minds are immediately drawn to a kind of internalized periodic table of elements that we learned about in high school. Empedocles, whatever he is talking about, is not talking about chemistry here. He's speaking of something much more basic than modern atoms and particles. And we should remember that the atoms we learned about in high school chemistry class are, it turns out, not atoms at all. What do I mean by this? Well, the word atom comes from the Greek atomos, meaning uncuttable, and human beings have been cutting atoms for some decades now with dramatic success. So if there are really atoms, they should be the quarks, or whatever it turns out that the quarks are made up of, or whatever it turns out that those constituents of quarks are made up of. Whatever really is the basic, uncuttable, smallest, tiniest thing that you cannot break up any further, if such a thing exists at all. But Empedocles isn't thinking of teeny tiny particles in the first place. He's thinking of something more fundamental still, I would argue. Now, before we say farewell to Empedocles, and perhaps consign him to the dustbin of outmoded science, I'd like to share a thought which occurred to me this afternoon. This is a thought experiment, actually. If you took a modern scientist and asked this person to outline the Big Bang Theory, the current dominant cosmological model, but you stipulated that they're not allowed to use modern mathematics and they're not allowed to use neologisms like gravity 
in their explanation. How would they describe the Big Bang? I put it to you that they would say something like the following. A ridiculously long time ago, everything that exists now was compressed together into an absolute mixture with no parts whatsoever. This primal sphere, which was unbelievably small, was subject to another powerful force, this one a force of repulsion, and began an eons-long process of expansion and separation into more and more specialized and separate substances. From the earliest simple elements, more complex elements were formed through a long and elaborate process of change. From this process in due time arose the life forms, as we know them, through a long process of biological evolution. And this expansive process is still going on. Although the attractive force is still present in the universe, the overall tendency is toward separation and expansion. And we can see with our instruments that the stars out there in the sky are expanding further and further apart. Now, as it happens, I've just given an exact paraphrase of Empedocles' cosmology. Everything I've just mentioned is there in the text. For attractive force, substitute love. For expansive force, substitute strife. And you're there. And Empedocles also posits a law of total conservation of matter and energy, as we've seen. So it makes you think, doesn't it? When the moderns finally figure out the prehistory of the Big Bang, how that singularity with everything in it got there in the first place, we'll find out that Empedocles got there first. Until next time, stay esoteric.